You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Well, good morning again to Anthem Church. My name is Stan Hayek, one of the pastors on staff. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be continuing our study in Genesis. So we are in Genesis chapter 16 and 17 today. So if you have your Bible, smartphone, you can start to pull that out. And again, just by way of review, we took a break last week, kind of something going on. Easter. Uh, And so we took a break in Genesis, but before that, we were in Genesis chapter 15, and that's where we see that that God makes a covenant with Abram, and he says, you're going to be the father of this whole nation of people, to which Abram's like, you know that me and my wife don't have any kids, right? But God said, yeah, nonetheless, I'm going to do something so unbelievable, and you're going to be blessed. And so we pick up the narrative here in uh, 16 and 17 today, but from the time of that promise, 10 years has passed. 10 years since God said, I'm going to do something. You just got to wait a little bit. <laughs> and we were talking about this in our, our connection group this week, kind of previewing, and like, what do we know about patience, Right? Because it's easy, I just want to forewarn us, when we get in the narrative today, you're like, how could they get impatient? Really, Anthem Church, right? Tell me about you guys. When you are at a stoplight and somebody's in front of you and you would never be on your phone while in your vehicle, but let's say they are, and the light turns green, how long before it's one, one thousand, two, one thousand, like, right, is that you, right? Like our level of impatience and understandably so we listed in our connection group, like what are all the things like we don't have to be patient of? It's like, you want to watch a movie? You used to have to go like drive down to Blockbuster, rent the thing. Some of you guys like, what, Blockbuster? Okay. They used to have movie store things that you'd rent them. And I I was trying to even recall how the process worked because now we're in a day where it's like, you just get online, Netflix it, there it is. I'm learning things. They were telling me about ways that we don't even have to be patient. And I knew, of course, like if you wanted food, you just call a number and, you know, they'll deliver you a pizza or bring you something. But now I'm learning like for groceries anymore. Like you can just online, like tell them what you want and just pull up and they'll just like put the groceries in your vehicle, right? This is crazy news to me. And so before we start looking at, uh, at, at, at Sarai and be like 10 years and you lost your patience, it's like, let's remember that we're not always the most patient of people. And so here she is, she's pushing 70 years of age. And so it's not that it's just, she hasn't had a kid within the last 10 years since the promise. But for, for 70 years, her entire adult life has just been marked by barrenness. And so she's been waiting a long time. And so we pick up the narrative in Genesis 16, and we see that now Sarai, verse 1, Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Time out. We're going to see one of the major themes today in today's text is God's got a plan, his plan, his timing, his way. But there's a lack of wanting to wait on God's timing. 
and certainly doing things God's way. And so begin to kind of take matters into their own hands. And you see uh, kind of her, her language there in, uh, in verse 2. It's like, maybe this was what God meant. <laughs> like, we thought maybe it was me and you, and that's how we were going to have kids. Maybe, it may be that it was supposed to be uh, from my servant. That's how. And so you see this getting a little bit uh, overly creative on how this is going to start to come about. And, and that's Sarai, but you see Abram is there through the whole time, and he's going to go along with it. And it starts to feel a little bit like we saw clear back in Genesis 3, the scene in the garden. And so here Sarai takes the lead. Abram's there. He kind of goes along with this. And husbands, there's perhaps a better response Abram could have had in this moment, right? Like my wife was pointing this out. She's like, maybe he could have said, uh, no. <laughs> like that doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> like married to being married to one person, there, there's challenges already. Two in the same household, not ideal. Like he could have said no. He could have said, hey, maybe we should pray about this. Like we should just slow down a little bit. Perhaps we should be patient. But again, it's easy when you're outside the narrative to look back into it. But we're going to see that he goes along with it. And so in verse 3, after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me by be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Okay, let's stop there. Okay, just by way of, of just wanting to be clear, this is a part of Scripture that is, is descriptive, simply describing events that took place. This is not prescriptive. Nobody should take that and like, you know what we should do is we should go get two wives. No, th this is just a descriptor. And, and when we look at the description, we're going to see that things, it is just a stinking mess that takes place. Do you see what started to happen there? There is not an innocent character in this whole thing. It reminds me, it brought a little prop. It reminds me of going fishing with, with small children. You know what I'm talking about when I say make a mess? Don't worry, the hook's covered up with some communion bread, so we should be good. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but if you ever take a kid fishing, and, and I took my daughters, you know, and so I had Danica and Hannah, and we went back to our ponds in Iowa, and there's just fish everywhere. Well, you start catching fish, and they start reeling them in, and of course, Dad, you know, with little kids, uh, you're the one that's like baiting the hook, and then casting it out for them. But inevitably, if you've ever taken a couple kids fishing, there comes a point where, where you need to help one kid, and the other kid is there with their pole like this. And normally you're the one casting in for him, and, and you just say to them, hey, if you could just be patient, daddy's gonna help you, like I'll help you, but I just need to help your sister first, so you just wait there, okay? Some of you know where this is going. You no more turn your back, and all of a sudden that kid just starts like swinging this thing around. You know what I'm talking about? And then they wrap it up, and then, and then all of a sudden, like, you, you don't know it, but then they're like this. 
And then they, I don't know what they do if they like try and do this and then they wrap it around here and then, and then you come back and you look and, and they look like, what happened? I was just standing here and, and this happened, dad. And you're like, I don't think that's how it goes. But it's one of those, those knots that's like, I can't pull that out, right? They just, kids will make an absolute mess. And it seems like that is what is what has happened in this story, in the narrative here, where they take matters into their own hands. And they're like, I'm tired of being, I'm tired of waiting. It's like, well, hopefully, you're going to wait a whole lot longer now, child. We're going to have to sink the pole and start over. Like, just made a mess of things. And that's what's happened. And then the blame starts. And again, you go back to Genesis 3. Then the blame starts happening where, where Sarai's like, Abram, made the wrong you did to me. It's like, what? It was your idea. And then, and then Abram, he's not in a good spot either. He's like, well, <laughs> I mean, hey, I'm removed of this. She's your servant. You do. Really? You're kind of a part of the problem. Maybe you should be part of the solution. But he, again, abrogates his role as a leader and says, well, you do what's best. And even Hagar, I have pity on her. Here she is a servant, but she's not exactly innocent either. Because as soon as she gets pregnant, what does she do? She starts looking with contempt on Sarai. That idea of like looking down, it's like, oh, clearly you were the problem. I went and I slept with him and it didn't take no time at all. You're the problem. And so she's looking down on what would have been her, uh, her uh, mistress, her, her master, so to speak. And so is just an absolute mess because of a lack of patience, leaning into God, his timing, and his way. And so none of these uh, characters are righteous. They've all messed it up through their impatience, through their lack of prayer, through their acting on fleshly desires. And so they've made a mess. God had a better plan, but they decided to come up with their own. And when we see back at the text, we're going to see continuing the narrative that Sarai does what? Not only is she blaming her husband, but then she is the one with power and she oppresses the one without power. Look, it says that Sarah, uh, Sarai dealt harshly with her, Hagar, so much so that Hagar fled from her. And we're going to learn later in the text that she runs out into the wilderness. Anthem, how harshly do you have to treat a pregnant woman where she decides that it is better off for her in the wilderness, potentially giving birth by herself than it is staying there with you. Things have to be pretty messed up. But that's where we see, and it begins to reveal something, and this isn't the main point, but it reveals something, and it's this reality that hurt people hurt people. This idea that, that, that Sarai feels hurt, a lot of hurt, I would argue, that is self-inflicted. But nonetheless, she feels hurt. She perhaps feels hurt by God that this promise has not been realized. Certainly, she feels hurt by her husband, hurt by her servant, and she just has all this hurt. And so she takes that hurt, and she just says, I'm going to hurt people. So much so that she drives Hagar out into the wilderness. And that still happens today, that hurt people hurt people. But here's a better response, and I was sharing this with our college ministry. Man, there were some things that went on this past week, and, and, and the, I saw a young college student that was the object of somebody's hurt. 
They were kind of like the Hagar in this story, minus that they weren't showing contempt for their mistress. They were just being hurt. But they recognized that the person wasn't ultimately mad at them, that there was something deeper driving their hurt. And rather than being put off and hurt by them, they went to that person and just poured out love and pursued them and started to get to the root of like, man, why is it that you want to hurt? Oh, it's because you were hurt. I, it's not the main point, but I would want you to recognize that your frustration because your boss and how they're treating you or that relative or that person that's hurting you, would you just please just recognize that hurt people hurt people? And there's probably something behind that hurt. There certainly was for Sarah, and it doesn't excuse it, but it, get, it begins to explain where this is coming from. Hurt people tend to hurt people. And here, despite all that and the infliction, God sees this mess. He sees it all. And in verse 7, we see this, that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring, her being Hagar, a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Anthem Church, God knows, he sees, he hears. And the fact that the Lord found her, he calls her by name. I can't imagine how comforting that must have been in the wilderness to be in that spot. And the fact that God knows, sees, and he just calls her by name. And so here's some of the application for us is, is it should be comforting. Because some of you might be in a spot where you're like, Hi, there's a mess going on. None of this is news to God. And, and the fact that God sees, he knows, he, he hears the prayers of Hagar and meets her there. To which the response was like, well, if God, if God sees it, then why doesn't he do something about it? You're telling me God knows this person's medical condition? God knows this little baby? And then if he's good, then why doesn't he just fix it? Why doesn't he take away their cancer? Why doesn't he help me be able to have kids? He knows I want that. Why wouldn't he give me that? Why wouldn't he give me a spouse? Why wouldn't God provide for me financially? There's a lot of good questions in regards to suffering. Why is there the suffering? And I'm not saying that your pain isn't real and that your situation isn't hard. And some of those questions, honestly, we'll never have answers to. I'm sorry. I don't, there's no other way to put that. And one of the best stories in, in, in Scripture is Job. Job, in, so much infliction. And Job is never informed as to the why behind all that. And the reality is, is at best, if God did answer that and he said, here's why, at best all you would have is an answer. I don't know if it would be any more comforting do you want an answer or do you want God? And, 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 and God knows what is going on. And I think the push from scriptures, we might not get an explanation, but can we trust God? Can we trust his goodness? And, 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 and Sarai, she didn't, she didn't want to wait. It'd been 10 years. She didn't want to wait anymore, and so she took control. And that was the alternative that led to this mess. And so God sees it all, finds Hagar in the wilderness, calls her by name, and listen. <laughs> listen to this. If you, 
this is verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Not only does God know, does he see, does he hear, and he, and he sees this mess, and there's good news coming, but let that sink in. How does God feel about suffering? How does God feel about trial? He asked her to return to the one that so mistreated her that drove her in her pregnancy out to the wilderness. Some wrongly assume that following God means that everything ought to be easy. That following God, a life served to God is God's just going to go before you. Everything's going to be peaceable. And if you face opposition, it's a sure tell sign that you must not be doing what God wants because God wouldn't want hard things for his kids. And I'm telling you, that's a lie from hell. Trusting God in his plan does not always mean the easy road. Point in case, Hagar. Church, did we not just celebrate Good Friday where we can say it's good, but, but again, Jesus Christ, the one of whom we follow, suffered, was crucified for our sin. And it's the same misconception that had people at the foot of the cross in Matthew 27 saying, well, if he was really the son of God, he would save himself. In Matthew 27, 42, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. If that's so, let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe. This prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel, not true, suggests that God would not have hard things for his people. That's not true of Hagar, and that's not true of Jesus, and it might, it might be so, Christian, that God wants you right where he has you, and it's in this spot of trial, and, and it's not that he wants to take you out of it, but to, to do something through that. And just by way of just application or, or, or confession more so, I feel like recently God took me through one of these spots. And I'll tell you that it was, it was hard. This season of trial, and I won't get into all the details, but it was one of those deals where it was, it was the hardest kind of years of our marriage um, in, in kind of this context and trying to serve and, and do these things. And I just remember like this, this challenge. And it was an opportunity that God presented to suffer well, to endure well. And you know, want to know how your pastor did? Failed miserably. <laughs> Like, that's the reality, is I just kicked, complained, just, uh, I'm trying to think of PG words. I was not happy in my complaining. I was so frustrated. I was mad. Now, God brought me through it, but it wasn't without me complaining every step of the way. And I feel like it's not just a matter of, of getting through, perhaps, the challenge, the suffering, but how and while God brought me through, and to him be the glory for that, how was not honoring? I did not endure or suffer well through that. And I feel like in that, in those moments of trial, as Mike Cox is, 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 is battling cancer and he's working with doctors, how he does that has an opportunity to say something about who it is that he ultimately believes is in authority. Does that make sense? It suggests that there's that, that you can lean in and you can trust knowing that God's ultimately in authority. 
And so our ability to endure and do well, trusting that Romans 8.28, that God is going to work all things out for the good of those who love him, perhaps in this life or certainly the one in, in the next. And Hagar, she submits. She goes back knowing that she's not ultimately submitting to Sarai, but she's going back because she's submitting to God. And we're going to see she goes back with this promise. She's going to have a son, and, and God's going to multiply, and his name should be Ishmael in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You're the God of seeing. Truly you've seen him who looks at, truly I've seen him who looks after me. And in verse 15, so she goes back, and Hagar bore Abram a son. And neighbor called the name of the son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And so when we look at uh, chapter 16, we're going to see that all these characters are flawed, except one. It's not Sarai, it's not Hagar, it's not Abraham, and then, then it's who? God. God is the only one who's righteous in this narrative. He's the God of seeing, hearing, and he, he meets. And so we're going to move into chapter 17, and we're going to see God's plan more displayed. We saw, oops, sorry, we saw what it looks like when people are in control, this mess. And so now we're going to move to a spot where we're going to see, well, what, what does God have? And it's certainly not what they came up with. And so as you look from 16 to 17, no, in uh Verse 16, it says, uh, Abram was 86 years old. Now, if you look in 17, verse 1, Abram was 99 years old. Okay? Not real great at math, but I think that's a 13-year difference we're talking between chapters. You want to talk about patience again? From 15 to 16 was 10 years, and now we have another 13 years where, where Hagar comes back, gives birth to this child, and 13 years later, 23 years since the original promise was made. 23 years. And so we, we see in 17, let's read, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And the reason he calls him Abraham is because in that language, that meant the father of many. So God gives him a new name, but not just him. In verse 15, we see that Sarai, no longer to be called Sarai, your wife, but she's to be called Sarah. And let that be her name. Your name is going to mean father of many, and her name is going to mean princess. This idea that you guys are, are going to be over this whole great nation of people. And I understand at this point, it's hard to imagine you with like those titles when you have yet to have your own child. But nonetheless, that is the promise that I'm making. That is the covenant. That is the commitment that is being made. And God said, hey, and let's establish a sign. As I make you into this great nation, I want to give a sign that shows that you are my people. It's like, okay, what's that sign? Are we like talking like cross necklace? We, we talking like the fish sticker? What's going to be our sign? None of those. <clears throat> verse 16, 
Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you, through their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring, after you. Every male of you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in your flesh and on your foreskin, and you shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh in an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So let's stop there. Again, circumcision is this cutting away of this extra skin from the male organ. And so it is, I would imagine, quite painful as a grown adult because what they would have done is they would have taken a flint rock, broken off a piece, chipped it away, and had a really sharp piece of rock, essentially. And now, here, clear back early on in Genesis, they're about to do, like, some cutting away, some surgery, Right? I can't imagine, you know, and God said, this is going to be my sign. And again, I'm like, can we pick another one? Like, (laughs) is there, I mean, he's 99, but I think if nothing else, one of those, no one else is going to try and like come across as God's people, like by stealing that sign. Like, I feel like that is a safe one where it's like, yep, you're clearly committed. (laughs) Fair enough. Like, because if it was something simple, like, but no, not simple. And so this sign, this cutting away, which also would signify like this cutting away of the, the man and revealing more of just God within us. And so Abram, Abraham now is 99 years old when this is going to take place. Now moving forward, God's going to say, hey, at eight days, it's probably a better time to do that. Like, we got to get you first round in. But after that, when, when baby who's eight days old uh, circumcise them. And I can imagine Abraham still sorting this out because the language and in the tone here, it's like, okay, circumcision. I think I know what you're saying. And he's processing this perhaps. And then God hits him with some additional news in verse 16. It says, as for Sarah, I'm going to bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her and I will bless her and she will become uh, I will bless her, and she will, shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And in verse 19, that son's name is to be Isaac. Now you imagine like God, Abram's like reeling with all this. And, and so I love verse 17. It says this, that Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Like he's trying to take it. He's like, really? I'm pretty old. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said this to God in verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What he's saying is, like, can't we just bless Ishmael? Like, I already have a son. He's 13. Like, can't we just do it that way, God? Can't we just, I know it's a mess, but can't we just put our blessing on him? He's already here. He's laughing. He's like, I don't think this is going to happen, God. And God said, no. 
my plan, my time, my way. Verse 19, he said, trust me. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. No, Abraham, we're not doing it your way. We're going to do it my way, and everybody's going to see old man, old woman having a kid, and they're going to go, "Mm, something's extraordinary here. (laughs) Let's do it my way because in doing it, God's plan in his time, in his way, to him be the glory then. And so it's going to be God's way. And Abraham, Abraham, he responds here, in verse 22, with just immediate obedience, when, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. In verse 23, then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Man, if you've been following our narrative, Abraham has these high highs and these low lows. And I feel like here at the end of our our narrative, he's like, yes, immediate obedience. And, And I'm just comforted by the fact that when we look at Scripture, we don't see perfect people who God picks and uses. And that's comforting me, and it should be comforting to you that it's not about what we do that determines if God is going to love us and can use us. Ephesians, when we look at the New Testament, says it like this. For it's by grace that we've been saved, through faith, not by works, either good works or bad, that anyone could boast, but it is God, to him be the glory. And so we too can be children of Abraham, that we can be a part of God's family. And it's not through circumcision, it makes it clear, but it's rather where are our hearts at? And do we have faith? Genesis 15. It's that faith that Abraham has. And say, do we have faith? And Galatians 3.29 says, if you belong to Christ, then you're a part of God's family, heirs according to the promise. That's how God has made a way. And that's how we can identify we are with him. Again, it is, it is, it is, it is personal faith and trust in God. And not just his plan, but, but in the person of Jesus. And that is what we celebrated last week, the fact that Jesus resurrected. And so we're going to have an opportunity today. And just the question to you before we take communion is, do you trust God? And I don't know where you're at and what you're kind of processing through, but what's the alternative? Right? What's the alternative to trusting God? Do it your way? Man, I've got things, I'm preparing this sermon, and and I have a tendency to just want to push ahead and do it my way. And I'm telling you, this is causing me rightly to slow down and say, God, what do you want? Not just in the big decisions, but the little things, because I don't want to do it my way. God, what do you want? And I'm referencing purchasing a mower. (laughs) Like, God, what mower do you want for me? Anthem Church, could we just for a moment, just say, God, what do you want? Because I want your plan, your timing, your way. We see in, in 17, how in chapter 17, how God's plan is so much better. 
than when we take control, chapter 16. And here's who it is that you're surrendering control to, just to be clear. And this is why we celebrate communion. Who you're surrendering control to is the God that loves you so much that he would send his son Jesus to die for you. That's who we're saying, God, (laughs) have my life. I trust you. As should be fitting because God in his love redeemed us from the hell that we deserve and has forgiven us and adopted us to be a part of his family through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so you're not blindly submitting or, or having faith or putting your trust in a God that is, it, who doesn't know you and, and doesn't care. We have a God that knows. He sees, he hears, and he loves us so much that he would send his son Jesus to die for us. That's how we get to respond today, trusting God. And so as the band comes up, just invite you to take communion. We have stations kind of set up uh, around the room. And what you can do is you can break off a piece of that bread signifying Jesus' body broken for us, and dip it in the cup, signifying his blood shed for us. And again, we can have a joy that our Savior took away our sins, but also in the resurrection that he defeated death and that home is heaven. And so, so excited to be able to do this as a family and respond immediately like Abraham. That day, we get to respond So when you're ready to surrender control to the God that knows, sees, hears, and loves you, I would invite you to make your way to one of these communion uh, tables, take communion, and then come back and just remain standing as we worship together. So I'll pray for us. God, thank you that you do know, that you see, that you hear, and you're a good God, and you can take broken people that aside from you, you just make a mess of things. And you can make us new. And so, God, we, we want, <laughs> would you please, God, would you help us truly believe that in our heads, feel that in our hearts today, and trust you. And so, even as we take communion, Lord, would you please work in our hearts in a fresh way, knowing who it is that we're trusting, a good God who goes before us. And so, God, we love you. And we thank you, and it's our joy to remember you, Jesus, in this time. And so we just pray this in the name of Jesus.